You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, May 26. I am joined by Jared Dillian, trader, Bloomberg opinion columnist, and publisher of The Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, how are you doing? I'm great. Great to be talking to you again. It's been three weeks. We skipped a week. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been too long. How's the weather down there in South Carolina? It's going to be hot on Friday. It's going to be 95. Okay. See, well, I see you've got the shirt, so, so you're ready. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jared, there's a lot we can talk about. We can talk about the reopening trade. Um, you know, is that fully priced in? Is that over? There's the inflation trade, which you've been very bullish on. We're now in a bit of a holding pattern. But you know, I understand, Jared. You sort of got a, a, something you have to get off your chest right away. That's about risk management. So I'll just set you up here in your um, in your newsletters today, the Daily Dirt Dump. You wrote, "Everything is a trade. Everything is meant to be sold." What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's nothing you want to hold forever. Now, first, let me say that the decision of when to buy something is very simple. You just, it's, it's a very easy decision. The decision of when to sell something is a thousand times harder. It's, it's much harder to decide when to sell something. So let me tell the story. I'll tell you the whole story about my adventures with gold. Okay. So I was trading ETFs at Lehman Brothers. This was 2005. And these guys came by from State Street and the World Gold Council, and they said they were going to start a gold ETF. I said, this is the greatest thing in the world, because at the time, I didn't really know how to buy gold, but I was super interested in it. So we launched the ETF. We were an authorized participant. And in my personal account, I started accumulating a position in gold. And not to get too much into the weeds as to what was going on at the time, but this was around the midterms in 2006. It went heavily towards the Democrats. It looked like we were going to get some left-leaning policies. And I said, okay, like this is, this is the right environment for gold. And then we had the financial crisis. So gold topped out. So I, my cost basis was around in the 500s, maybe 600. It peaked at 1000 $1,000 an ounce when Bear Stearns went bankrupt, which was March 17, 2008. And then going into the financial crisis, it went down. And so in the teeth of the financial crisis, gold was down 30% from the highs. It was $700 an ounce. That was right about the time that I started the Daily Dirt Nap. Okay? So really, my first trade idea in the Daily Dirt Nap was gold is massively mispriced, massively mispriced. Financial crisis, whatever, got to buy gold. So I was pounding the table on it. That was a great trade idea. So gold rallies for the next three years, and it turns into a bit of a bubble in 2011. It's $1,900 an ounce. This is around the time of the European debt crisis. But there were all these signs that it was getting very speculative. Okay, Like you started seeing these cash for gold stores and shopping malls. Um, there was all the metals were rallying. Some of the precious metals dealers were offering copper coins. Like I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm like, this is bad. Like I should get out of this trade. But there was a lot of people at the time, these gold holders, they said, I am never selling gold. 
because the end game here is that gold, we're going to go back to a gold standard. We're going to revalue gold to eight, ten thousand dollars an ounce. And that's my exit strategy is when we go back to a gold standard. And people were saying that back then. And that sounds very familiar with what's going on today because you have people that say, we're not going to sell Bitcoin because eventually we're just all going to be using Bitcoin. So I said, I'm not going to sell. Now, I said, I'm ready to take a drawdown, bring it on. Okay. And this was my biggest position. It was like 40% of my portfolio at the time. And the drawdown happened. And over the course of a couple of years, it traded down to 10, 15 ounce. It was like a 40, 45% drawdown. And it was painful. And I had a lot of regret. You know, I said, you know, shit, I should have, I should have, I should, I, I knew, I knew that it was at the highs. I should have sold it. And I talked myself out of it. And, and I, I said, I'm going to take the drawdown. And I took the drawdown. So what happened in 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago, is a direct parallel to what is going on today in Bitcoin. And you know, and from a sentiment standpoint, sentiment is what I study, you see a lot of the same parallels. You saw the laser eyes and you saw Elon Musk and Dogecoin and all this stuff. And you know, not to do the, you know, hindsight is 2020 thing, but you know, back when it was trading above 60,000, there was a, there was a lot of signs that there was a lot of speculative excess. And it would have been a good time to take profits. But it was the same logic that people used back in 2011. They said, well, I'm just going to take the drawdown because I don't really have the ability to trade this around. You know, I could leave some gains on the table. So they took a 50% drawdown. And that's no fun. And it's no fun if you have 100 Bitcoins and you just lost 3 million bucks. So my philosophy after 2011 just radically changed. And I sell stuff. You know, and my the guidepost that I use generally is sentiment. When things are getting frothy, that's when I sell. And sometimes I sell things too early, but you can't get too tied up in I have to top tick this. Sometimes you're 10% early, 20% early, and that's okay. You sell, you take the profits. And then if you care, you know, year, two years, five years from now, you get to buy it back at a lower price. And it's really, really good to take profits and pay taxes. I would rather pay taxes than have losses. Taxes are the sign that you did something good. Wow, uh, a lot to pack in there. Jared, uh, let's go back to 2011. What was the sentiment there? Tell us what were the signs of the top tick now that you, that you were looking back on it? Um, what one thinks, I think there was a, maybe one or two days where the GLD, the gold ETF, was actually larger in market cap than uh, SPY for the S&P 500. So looking back, that is perhaps a top tick what are the signs now, Jerry, in 2021, looking back where you said, hmm, this was a, this is a sign of some extreme froth in the crypto markets. You know, tell us more about uh, your thoughts when you're making that parallel. Well, you know, I, I sold too early, you know, because in the spirit of, you know, I wasn't trying to top tick Bitcoin, you know, I did avoid a drawdown, but, you know, I sold too early and, and that's fine. You know, I had a sizable profit. And I got cash, and I'm using the cash for stuff, and you know that's per that's that's perfectly acceptable. And I always have the option of getting back in. You know, we've talked about this on the show before. You know, you've asked me when I would get back in, and I think it has to go a lot lower. Um, you know, in, in terms of some of the sentiment signs we're seeing right now, I mean, we have Bitcoin down forty-ish percent from the highs. And Anthony Pompliano has a pizza party and a thousand people show up. Like that kind of tells me that people haven't felt enough pain yet. 
And, you know, the market always finds that point of maximum pain. It always does, you know. So, and that's that's not a directional call. I'm not saying Bitcoin's going to go down. I'm just saying from a sentiment standpoint, people haven't felt enough pain yet. Well, the pain was definitely acute when you had that forced sell-off, a likely forced uh, liquidation as a result of leverage players losing losing their hands, being forced to sell. And you had it really crashing down to just above uh, $30,000. But to... to um, Push back on this, Jared, and I want your thinks. The pain, it was acute, but it didn't last long. What did you make of the somewhat very impressive uh, pullback that we've seen seen from Bitcoin? It's sort of snap back. What did you make of that? Uh, it, it's short term. There's a lot of volatility. I mean, you know, with gold, I didn't get back to the previous levels for nine years. You know, it was it was it was a nine year pullback. That's a long time to wait. You know, so, um, you know, I, I think I think there's there's a lot of short term volatility here. Um, you know, I you know, gold trading in a hundred dollar range is like Bitcoin trading in a twenty thousand dollar range. So I, I just I, I think it's kind of it's not apples to apples. Right, right. What, um, Jerry, what are the signs of the top in the crypto market that you see? Not necessarily the top, but of the froth. Like, I, for example, I think the Coinbase uh IPO, or actually, excuse me, direct listing was was literally the top tick for Bitcoin, the top day of Bitcoin. You know, what else are you seeing? You know, you mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, is it? Do you make anything of these celebrity NFTs that are uh, it's, becoming it's, more and more it's popular? All that stuff. I mean, you're you're doing a better job listing all these things than I am. I mean, the Coinbase, I you know, the direct listing is that was really the big one. Um, you know, Brent Donnelly pointed this out. He kind of woke me up to it. But I mean, if you go back to, I think it was 2007 when Glencore went public, that was the top tick of the commodities market. When Blackstone went public, that was the top tick of private equity. I mean, it just, it, those types of things, it happens, it happens every time. So there was, you know, there were, there were plenty of indications that that was going to happen. I was just early, you know, which is fine, which is fine. Yeah, as you say, it's tough to nail the dismount. Jerry, what would you say to someone who has a sizable profit in Bitcoin or crypto? Uh, the profit has shrank somewhat uh, since we've seen this drawdown. Um, what it, obviously, you know, I mean, you wouldn't say to sell the entire thing because you know there are a lot of laser eyes. But you're telling them to manage risk. Like, uh, give us, can you give us more detail on what you, what you know, your thoughts on risk management, ideal risk management at this point? So I would say that if if you're a holder of Bitcoin and your cost basis is very low, okay, like say below ten thousand or below five thousand, um, you know, a lot of people you have this phenomenon where where somebody has a very low cost basis, it sort of distorts their thinking um, because they say, well, I can take a fifty percent drawdown, but I still have a massive profit. But if you if you think in terms of the dollar amount of the drawdown, it can be quite large, and that's I don't really like to give away that kind of money. I like to be stingy with gains. So my advice would be to sort of average out of that position over time. Sell some today, sell ten percent, and wait and see what happens. And in a couple of weeks, sell another ten percent. You know, and start and, and start to average out of this position. So that's I mean, and that's assuming that. You know, I mean, if you're a believer in the thesis that Bitcoin goes to a hundred thousand or a million or whatever, that's you know, I, I can't really change your mind. But it's always good to you don't have to sell the whole thing. You just sell some. You can just sell a small piece and take some profits. Right. Okay. Um, 
Let's move on to something that you were bullish on. Tom V asks, Jared, what are you bullish on right now? Uh, I'm kind of bullish on the same stuff as the last time we talked. You know, uh, I'm feeling a, a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, the, the last couple of times we talked, I've just been pounding the table on inflation, inflation, inflation. And that trade has kind of cooled off a little bit. Um, it, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff that I own is in consolidation mode. And then then you sort of, you know, you have these voices in your head. You're like, well, you know, is this the top? Uh, how much more do I expect to get out of this? You know, should I take some profits? And um, it, what I what I always fall back on with regard to the inflation change is the fact that psychology has changed and that people are now expecting higher prices. So, you know, the short-term supply bottlenecks with like chlorine tab tablets and lumber and stuff like that, like that, that will work itself out. But I think from on a from a long-term secular basis, I think that the inflation psychology has changed. And I still think it's has many more years to run. It's just that now it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable to have that idea. You said the inflation psychology has changed. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you go back 10 years ago and you were going to buy a TV or a bag of fertilizer or a coffee table or something like that, there was no hurry because prices were declining. Prices on everything were going down. So you didn't have to buy today. You could wait a year and prices would be cheaper. Now that whole psychology is running in reverse. People have come to expect higher prices in the future, so they're accelerating their consumption. They're buying today instead of tomorrow. And when that psychology changes, it actually sets off this reflexivity because people buying sooner actually causes prices to go up, which exacerbates the inflationary psychology, which gets people to buy sooner and so on. It's sort of a vicious cycle. So that's, that's what I mean when I talk about the inflationary psychology. I want to dig into that, Jared. So you included in one of your uh, earlier newsletters a quote from Peter Lynch, who said, the day after the market crashed on the 19th of October 1987, people began to worry that the market was going to crash. So you know the sort of stereotype is, um, everyone wants to buy puts right after the market crashed. And that's kind of what you saw uh, in, in March 23rd of, of, of last year, in 2020. So my question for you is, do you, th do you think that there is kind of a, uh, you know, people are feeling a little antsy after that CPI print that we saw um, last month. And now they sort of went, went a little bit too far and they were um, sort of bracing for the next battle. But we've had, you know, and so what do you think about that? And then how do you, to what do you attribute the slowdown in the inflation print? Excuse me, excuse me, in the, sorry, in the inflation trade, like things like oil and, you know, bonds going down, things like that. Well, when I put that quote in the newsletter, what I was really referring to is this phenomenon where people tend to be backward looking. You know what I mean? They, um, you know, the thing with the crash, like the market crashes and then everybody wants to buy puts. I mean, that's, you know, it's uh, it, that that sort of stuff happens all the time. It's actually a good question. I haven't thought of it in that context before. Um, you know, Barron's had the inflation cover. Now, Barron's is not a perfect contrarian indicator. The Economist is. The Economist absolutely is a perfect contrarian indicator. And if The Economist came out with an inflation cover, I would seriously rethink my positions. I would seriously rethink it. But Barron's is right 
some of the time, okay? And I think that might be more of a coincident indicator, but this is present in everybody's psychology, whereas eight months ago, it wasn't present in people's psychology. But, you know, I think that, I think that the trend has changed. You know, I don't, what I really don't see is an environment where we go back to, you know, yields on tens going back below 1% and CPI going back below 2%. I don't think the deflation trade is coming back. I just, I think the economy has changed. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Jared, you mentioned the 10-year. Now, the 10-year is about at 1.57. Um, that is the yield there. Somewhat lower than the high we reached in the mid 1.7 range um, a few months ago. What is your outlook on bonds going forward? You said, okay, so in the uh, you know the the, belt, the normal distribution, you think it's highly unlikely that the 10-year goes below one. What do you think about um, you know it increasing? Do you th and to what uh, do you attribute the possibility of an extreme sell-off in bonds of you know higher than two percent on the 10-year, which a few months ago uh, a lot of people seemed to think was coming? Yeah. Uh, I don't have a position in U.S. Treasuries. I'm just kind of an observer at this point. Uh, I will say that I was I was max bearish Treasuries on the high yields for sure. I was just like everybody else. I was max bearish. Um, you know, I there's some stuff about the Treasury market I don't understand. Uh, when I talk to people who trade rates. They talk about things like pension funds in Japan and stuff like that. So I, I don't really understand the flows, um, and I, I think I think that the flows are kind of driving this because you know we you know we did have a really hot CPI print and you know tens are rallying a little bit. Um, I, I do ultimately think that tens get to two percent. Um, you know, if you go back a couple of months ago, everybody was talking about yield curve control, and nobody's talking about yield curve control right now. Uh, the, everybody's attitudes have totally changed. And also, now that tens have rallied about twenty basis points, people are starting to speculate. Well, may, you know, maybe maybe tens will go to one percent. There was a there was a speaker at the SIC conference who shocked everybody. He said that tens were going to go back to one percent. I would be very surprised if that happens. Okay, I'm not going to say it can't happen. Because the rates market does some crazy stuff, but I would be very surprised if that happens. Uh, Jared, I think that's a perfect segue to you talked about rates. Um, that is on the long end of the curve, the ten-year, the thirty-year, perhaps. But what do you think about the short end of the curve that the Fed has almost complete control of, the effective federal funds rate? So many people are, are speculating about whether the Fed is going to hike, and obviously that would have profound economic. Implications. Could you briefly explain why it is important and what is your timeline on when or even if the Fed is going to hike rates? Yeah, I mean, we've had some Fed speakers lately. I forget what day it was, but we had four speakers in a day. We had Bullard and Brainier and Bostic and, and somebody else. Um, and they were all pretty dovish speeches, but they're all they're so, they're all sort of hinting at this tapering. And you know, the Fed speakers are coordinated. I mean, they do have a coordinated message. And this is a very slow-moving Fed. I mean, one thing I told you in a previous episode of this was that if you go back 20 years ago, they just used to like do an intermediate rate hike of like 50 basis points, and like they don't do that anymore. They're very careful to manage the market's expectations. So what they've effectively done is they planted the seed 
for tapering in people's minds, okay? And so that when they do start to do it, it's not going to be a surprise and it's not going to shock the market. You know, actually, just from a from an ethical standpoint, I don't see any I don't see anything wrong with shocking the market. I think you should shock shock the market. You know, I, I think they sh- should do an intermediate rate hike. But this this Fed, I guess, over the last ten to fifteen years, is very careful about market expectations. And they want to keep markets functioning smoothly. So they planted the seed, which means that if they really do intend to taper, it's going to happen six months from now at a minimum. And they're going to do that over three or four quarters, which means that the first rate hike is one and a half to two years from now. So there's no reason to like, you know, pick up the bat phone and call the White House and like sell everything right now. Like this is a very slow moving phenomenon, but you have to keep an eye on this because, you know, all it all it takes is one comment out of Jay Powell or somebody to, you know, to really shock the market on an intraday basis. So you have to pay attention to this. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jared, I've got a question for you I want to pose because it's a question that's baffled me since I really ever started following financial markets for real. And it's the question of is quantitative easing? Inflationary or deflationary? And does it increase yields or was it does it decrease yields? Some would say, of course it decreases yields. They're buying bonds. When you buy bonds, that decreases yields. Others contend that actually, if you look at the evidence, sometimes yields rise. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think that if the Fed does taper, that could you know turn uh, turn rates down instead of up? Yeah, I have an opinion on that. I don't know if it's a terribly informed opinion. Um, but if you go back to 2008, when the Fed first started quantitative easing, November of 2008, where Bernanke was Fed chair, um, you know the the response out of me and everybody else in the market was that this was massively inflationary. Okay, they're printing money; it's massively inflationary. So there were two trades that came out of that. One was buy gold. Okay, and we talked about gold before. Gold ripped. And the other one was basically to buy puts on bonds. But you know what a lot of hedge funds were doing, they, they were doing these things called CMS caps, which was basically call options on interest rates. Okay. So there were these hedge funds buying gold and that trade worked out. And then they were buying these CMS caps, and that was a complete disaster, and rates went down. And gold went up for three years based on this fear of inflation, but you never got inflation. So all these predictions of inflation were wrong. And that's how we ended up with this theory that quantitative easing causes deflation. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's spurious correlation. I don't think it necessarily causes or doesn't cause deflation. I mean, a lot of the money that is printed ends up in bank reserves, and it doesn't find its way into the economy. I think the difference this time is that we're getting a lot of fiscal stimulus, which is increasing velocity. You're giving money to people, which is being spent, it's being consumed, and that's what's causing the inflation. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think quantitative easing is necessarily deflationary. Thanks for that, Jared. You mentioned CMS. I think that's the uh, constant maturity swap, which reminds us of our mutual friend, uh, Nancy Davis. But uh, Jared, I'm glad that you mentioned gold, because 
Prius Omega, uh, a you know, longtime subscriber and commenter on Real Vision for the daily briefing, um, asked, Jared, what are your thoughts on the recent action of the uh, spot price of gold, as well as the action in the miners, G GDX and GDXJ? Uh, I think it's bullish price action. You know, just from a technical standpoint, we had a wedge uh, that came into play around 1850. We broke through the wedge. Um, it's it's not it's not screaming higher. It's sort of a slow grind higher. I think it's bullish. Um, I think ultimately we'll go back and retest 2070. Um, I'm very happy with my gold positions right now. I, I'm, I'm just I'm I don't want to say I'm super bullish, but uh, I'm I'm optimistic. Thanks for that. Okay, so let's move on to the other commodity, which is oil. I want to ask your opinion on oil, but I guess I'll just repeat um, Timothy Guarino's question, which is said, uh, Jared, I think in one of your previous interviews, you mentioned you think that oil can hit 80 this summer. Have your thoughts changed at all? And how do you feel about uh, the major oil companies specifically? I think WTI was net, what, at 66 now or 67? Yeah, my thoughts my thoughts on oil are changing a little bit, not a lot. Um, I think eighty is still a possibility. I'm a little uh, I'm a little disappointed by the price action. Um, I thought as we got into the summer that we'd see a little bit better price action out of crude. Uh, it hasn't happened, so I'm being patient. But I am I'm, I am definitely keeping an eye on it. I mean, this is I mean, just to be perfectly candid, this this is not the price action that I wanted to see. So I'm, I am having some doubts, uh, but I'm not doing anything with my positions right now. Okay, thanks. And um, when you, he also asked, in addition to oil, he asked about oil companies. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, same thing. You know, I mean, this is you know what's tough about this trade is that um, you know I I, I you know I, I have a position in XLE, basically calls on XLE that are deep in the money, and I and I and and it's a lot. And I bought these when oil was very distressed, okay, back last year, like about a year ago. Um, and this is this is a very tough position to be in as a trader when you 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 have a thesis, you put the trade on, and it works, and it gets to eighty percent of the level you think it should go to, okay? And so you're then then you're then you're starting to think like, Okay, should I wait for that last twenty percent? Okay, because that's really where I think it belongs. I think XLE should go to sixty. I do. Um, so, how, you know, how greedy am I going to get? Like, am I going to wait for that sixty? Should I start taking profits? So, these are kind of the thoughts that are going through my head right now, and it, it's really not the best position to be in. Jared, I'm I'm curious. To what degree do you think about timing? Because obviously the uh, further out your option is, the less it decays, the less the, the it's exposed to uh, um, theta. Um, what do you think about these, like I guess, deep in the money options that are far out in the future? They're very, I figure, very sensitive to implied volatility. So I think that you know, even though the oil trade has worked out, and you call it a hiccup, but Jared, you know, I mean, I've been following this trade too. It's not that like Exxon's down. It's just has it's just they've stopped going up. So how do you think about owning these long dated calls? Um, and you know. How do you how do you sort of decompose what your different risks and opportunities are? Well, I mean, essentially, I'm holding XLE. They're 100 delta calls. There's no decay. There's no optionality left. They're 100 delta calls. So I don't. I, it's not like the clock is working against me. I, you know, I can hold these. They're uh, January 2022 maturity. So at some point, you know, I'll either have to sell them or I'll have to roll them or they'll expire. So. 
Okay, um, Jared, moving on from that, obviously a potential headwind for oil is uh, ESG, activist investors uh, diverting capital away from uh, companies that emit a, a high amount of CO2. Today, um, uh, Jared, I don't know if you saw ExxonMobil announced that um, an activist who owns a tiny fraction of ExxonMobil um, managed to secure board, sheet, uh, excuse me, board seats uh, for themselves so that they can move forward um, on investing in green technologies and, and reducing emissions. Um, Jared, I want to ask you, I, I don't know if you follow Exxon, but it's, it's you know, one of the, if not the biggest component of XLE. Um, what do you make of ESG as a potential threat to oil companies? Or do you think oil companies can sort of ride the wave and emerge stronger? Uh, I'm still kind of processing it. You know, I, I pulled up uh, I pulled up a chart of ExxonMobil during the day, and it actually went up on the news. It was actually up quite a bit. Um, I don't know if that's some kind of weird Costanza trade or whatever. I mean, uh, from I mean, from an ethical standpoint, you know, you have um, you know these big indexers like BlackRock and Vanguard that are now acting as activist investors. And they're doing so in a, in a fashion that is contrary to the interests of their own shareholders. They're doing they're doing things that are detrimental to their own shareholders in order to advance certain social causes. So I I really I really disagree with what the indexers are doing. Um, having said that, you know, uh, can ExxonMobil and other energy companies survive in ESG? I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. I mean, it's it's something I'm keeping an eye on. Definitely, I certainly have no idea either. But someone who's been thinking uh, about this a lot is natural resource investor Marin Katusa. Uh, I interviewed him on Real Vision today, and he uh, really has a lot of strong thoughts about ESG. You know, I know him as a commodities person, so I was expecting to you know interview him about specific commodities and specific miners and stuff. But he really has very strong beliefs um, on ESG, and he's very bullish on the on the carbon trade. Um, Jared, as we approach a close, I want to I want to ask you, what is your thought on financials? Uh, Natalie DiMaggio asks that and, you know, let's take something with like, like the ETF uh, XL excuse me, XLF which uh, was in your newsletter today. Um, what is your outlook on that? It's been on quite a tear. What do you see going forward? Yeah, I totally I totally missed that trade and I feel a little stupid. I mean, not like I can catch every single trade, but that seemed like an obvious one and I missed it. I mean, if you look at XLF, it's up almost 100% in a year, you know? And it was funny because I walked in this morning and there was a Bloomberg article about IAI. And I'm like, now I remember when they launched IAI, I was, I was the ETF trader at the time. It was the broker-dealer ETF. And, um, you know, that ETF got annihilated during the financial crisis and it lost all its assets. So as of a couple of weeks ago, it had only 300 million in assets. It's now it's got like 750 million in assets. It's just taking in all these assets. So I think that I think that the trade has a little bit more legs into it. I think this is a pretty favorable environment for banks. I think yields are going to go up. I think the curve's going to get marginally steeper. Um, and you know, the deal volume is great. All, everything's positive. So uh, I, I think there's probably some upside, but you know, I, I really hesitate to put on a position this late in the this late in the game. Mm. Is there anything that will make you reconsider and that that you would put on a position? Well, I do have some financial exposure. So uh, I bought a life insurance company, uh, and that trade's working out pretty well. So it's not like I don't have any financial exposure at all. 
So I think I'm just going to sit on that for now. Yeah. Um, Jared, by the way, I think I was, I was speaking with an analyst today, and he told me that financials, more than any other sector, any other XL insert letter in the S&P 500, uh, financials have the best analyst revisions, meaning that they are constantly beating expectations and, and revisions are going up and up. So they are, they're definitely at the, at the front of the pack. Yep. Yeah. Um, Jared, let us close by talking about something that is um, close to your heart, which is a party that you yeah. are throwing in New York City. Tell us about this party. When is it? Where is it? And why did you want to host a party? <laughs> I've, I've done probably like 10 or 15 parties over the years, but this is going to be the biggest one. And everybody is invited. Uh, I'm putting out the link for tickets on Twitter tomorrow. Okay. So just watch my Twitter feed around noon. I'll put out the link for tickets. It's at a place called Do D-O-U-X Supper Club, which is at 59 West 21st Street. It's Friday, June 25th, and it starts at 8 p.m. And we're going to shut the place down. Wow. Sounds like a ton of fun. I will be there, as well a few of my Real Vision colleagues um, who you, you may be familiar with. Jared, I understand that you were able to get a um, pretty famous, renowned DJ, DJ Stochastic. How did you manage to secure <laughs> such a successful DJ? <laughs> That's my alter ego, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, you know, in one of my previous parties, uh, we had uh, David Solomon. Oh, wow. We wow. did. I but did this, not know this, that. Was, uh, this was before he was CEO. He was uh, president of Goldman Sachs. That's so his, his, he doesn't have as much availability these days. But I, I did DJ with David Solomon. Uh, it was back in like 17 or 18, something like that. So, Wow. I bet he had a lot more fun there than he did today uh, testifying before Congress. Um, for everyone who doesn't know, uh, DJ Stokastic is, yeah, Jared Dillian. Uh, he is a DJ on the side. Jared, one of your songs that I listened to recently had a clip from, I believe, CNBC, where Becky Quick was talking to Muhammad El Aryan. What was your inspiration for that clip? Because that just struck me out of the blue, and I was really uh, dumbfounded. I love that. Uh, you know that that particular track. It's funny because um, you know, I, I mean, I, I have a I have a pretty good knowledge of all my music, but I dropped that track in, but I hadn't listened to it all the way through, so I actually didn't know that clip was in there. So it was totally by accident. So, oh wow, oh that that, that is uh, very surprising. Um, all right, so Jared, as we reach a close, can you do you want to just give people? Um, you know, you have a Bloomberg opinion piece coming out soon. Uh, do you want to tell people about that? No, that's a secret. We'll keep okay, that secret. secret. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. Well, um, Jared, thank you so much for coming on the daily briefing. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who is watching at home. Thank you so much to the Real Vision members watching this on realvision.com. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, click that like, bu like button, smash the subscribe button, and uh, honestly, check out realvision.com. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Talk soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.